Accelerating Careers in Real Estate with Nick Carman. Brought to you by McDonald & Company. So welcome back to another episode of Accelerating Careers in Real Estate. I'm your host, Nick Carman, and today I get to interview one of my favourite types of guests, those who've discovered real estate later in life. Now, Darren Gardner, less than 10 years ago, was an executive for Carphone Warehouse, but today he's the chief exec of Nido, a management and operator of student accommodation with over 7,000 beds across Europe. So Darren, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you, Nick. Great to be here. Now, to get us going, do you want to tell us where sort of chapter one begins? Yeah, sure. So I suppose chapter one for me starts in Zimbabwe, which is where I was born um, and raised. And I often look back on those years, especially my schooling years and the, the years where I was fortunate enough to have parents looking after me um, with great fondness. It was a, a brilliant environment to be brought up in. Um, and although it's massively changed over the years, I don't think I would change my my kind of childhood if I had the option. And I suppose, why do I want to start in Zimbabwe? I think it it probably gives a little bit of perspective as to why I am the person I am today and potentially why I've got a reasonably strong resilience gene, which is something that I would always encourage people to to be an expert at. I, again, was fortunate enough to, to, to go to a reasonably um, excellent school in Zimbabwe. And, you know, that, that culture was very much around education and sport. Um, in fact, sometimes more focus on sport than education. And I think for for me, that was a reasonably good angle because I probably wasn't the most studious person in the world, um, but I always managed to to get it done. I think against everyone's opinion, whether I would pass my exams or move forward, I was always able to to prove them wrong, um, and actually, you know, passed my GCSEs and my and my A levels. But during that time um, in Africa, you know, you you had slightly less structure around what happened after school and I could probably say I had a, a pretty wild and wonderful upbringing with few few curfews on my time um, and also got myself into quite a few different situations that you had to deal with and especially when you're in Zimbabwe and you're out in the in the wilderness um, obviously not not as much today but then when we were out in the in the bush as we called it there were very many near-death experiences mainly with um, crocodiles and uh, wild boar and um, and elephants which which is always an entertaining story at, at a dinner party um, but yes you know ultimately when you were out, um, in the wilderness, it it was sometimes a situation of life or death, and and I had a few, let's say, near death experiences, um, probably for, from being a little bit silly or or a little bit uh, someone who who didn't necessarily always observe the rules um, when our guides were telling us not to go and do stuff. Um, I generally see that as a challenge, um, and I think that probably. That probably um, comes across in in you know in in later in my career when it comes to looking at opportunities and trying to do things a little bit differently. 
But I think a couple of the challenges I did face in Zimbabwe, which which really started to form, I suppose, me as a person, was I realized probably reasonably late on in life that I was a little bit different to most of my most of my school friends in that I, I probably didn't like I didn't like girls as much as they did, although um, I was told I had to like girls. I found that a little bit weird and I tried to conform um, and no one really spoke about anything else other than, you know, enjoying sport, liking girls, getting married and having kids um, and then going to work. And although I agreed with some of those things, I, I couldn't, I couldn't quite, I couldn't quite like girls as much. And I realized at that point I was, I was a little bit different to most. And interestingly in, in Zimbabwe, no one really spoke about you know, being gay or, or, or anything like that. It was, it was mainly unspoken and didn't really come across anyone or anything that was different. But I did realize that I was, I was different and, and it did turn out I was, I was, I was gay. And in Zimbabwe, that, that is a bit of a challenge because you kind of get put in prison with no immediate release date. You just get put in prison, which is an interesting conundrum to have to figure out when you're 16 and and then you know try and navigate the world and at that point I've always been a reasonably open person and I suppose with my close group of friends I did discuss it and you know hey ho out of you know 30 friends I was probably left with three or four but those three or four have been a huge rock and support to me and 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 have, have been with me for the rest of my life so I suppose one of the key learning things for me at that time was, you know, sometimes we are all a bit different, um, you know, and, and how you deal with it is an important part of it. It took me a long time, but I found by just staring down the barrel of the gun and, and, and trying to figure out, you know, who I was and, and why I was that way and, and realize just because I'm different doesn't mean I'm any better or worse than others, um, probably set me up for the for the next phase of my life. And I think that brings us on to, to chapter two. And chapter two was really a, a decision that I had as a as a young teenager, whether I stayed in Zimbabwe or I left. And at that time, and we're, we're kind of talking back in the early 90s, the political instability really kicked off. And I couldn't quite see a future for for young people in Zimbabwe, and and it was at that point I had thankfully found an amazing partner who's been a rock throughout my whole career, and you know there was the option for me to leave Zimbabwe and and come to England, and although I had travelled around Africa a lot, I'd never left Africa, so it was quite a big step for me to to kind of make that decision. But genuinely, I just could not see a future for young people in Zimbabwe, especially when it came down to just thinking and dealing with things in an ethical way. And I, th- I think that's always been, you know, one of my my key mantras is is just, you know, treating people fairly and, and, and trying to do my own thing without affecting others greatly um, and always trying to see other people's perspective and and I just couldn't see that happening in Zimbabwe so I made the leap 
to come to the UK with the initial ambition of going to university. But at that time, my my father was happy to support me. But the inflation, and I don't know if any of our listeners will even remember or or know about the inflation in, in Zimbabwe, but it, it went absolutely nuts. And it was it was the highest inflation, I think, on record of any country um, in all of history. And and people's kind of net worth literally over a couple of months um, just plummeted. And that left me with a, an interesting situation because effectively the cost of me going to university increased fivefold in six months that I arrived in in the UK and and ultimately that was just a financial burden I would never want to put on my father so I decided to um to make my own way in life I was in a new country in a totally new environment and the one thing I will say about the UK is it's the most fantastic place in the world and I think um people who live live here all their lives and are born here probably under underappreciate the freedom, the opportunities, and the amazing system that we have in place, even though we all like to complain on the odd occasion that things don't work or the government's not great or the NHS isn't doing a good job. I would challenge any of those people to go and try and live their lives um, outside of all that support. And I've been very fortunate to walk, work in 14 different countries um, over my career, and I can honestly say the UK is is still the best place for people. But at that time, I I had to get a job. Um, my dad thankfully gave me a thousand pounds and sent me on my way. <laughs> um, I was very grateful for that thousand pounds. It paid for my first couple of months' rent. But I had to get a job and getting a job was a little bit of a challenge initially because I had to sort out my my right to work and all that kind of stuff, which thankfully I did. And what I did find in in the UK was if you if you're prepared to work and you know prepared to work reasonably hard, people will employ you. Um, and I needed to make a life for myself and I obviously had I was very fortunate in Zimbabwe of, of the lifestyle I had. And in order to in order to try and just survive in, in the UK, I needed more than one job. And in, I suppose, the first couple of years I worked in the UK, I actually had four or five jobs at the same time. And whether that was selling the dreaded double glazing on an evening um, or standing outside restaurants, I remember trying to sell memberships, which was very interesting and no one wanted to talk to me to being a waiter over the weekends to being a customer service clerk um, at an airport which meant I got very red fingers because back in the day you had to to manually handle tickets and they were on carbon paper as well as working at Southwest Water as a customer care agent during the day so I was pretty busy for two years I didn't have a day off I just worked but what I did learn through that was, A, how to deal with lots of different people and lots of different situations, and also, you know, how to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. And I think for anyone starting 
their career, I, I would always encourage you to, to put yourself in an uncomfortable situation. Because what happens when you're uncomfortable, you have to adapt. You have to see things from another point of view. Sometimes you just have to admit that's the way it is and, and I'm going to make the best of the situation. But more often than not, when you come out of that situation, you've learned something. And I think all through my career, what I've always wanted to do is, is kind of learn and grow. And those first couple of years doing what some people would class as menial jobs gave me a, an amazing grounding. I got to speak to and work with some fantastic people. And I got to learn that, you know, if you, if you work hard, slowly, um, things go your way. Um, and there's always a, a funny saying, and I, and I suppose it came more in my, my, my next chapter about, you know, people who say you're lucky. And I remember someone saying to me, yeah, it's funny how the harder you work, the luckier you get. And that's always stuck with me. <laughs> um, and it's true in a way. Sometimes you do pick that winning lottery ticket and you should take that every single time. But ultimately, I have found, you know, sometimes the harder you work, the luckier you get. And I think that kind of brings me onto my next chapter, which is a, a reasonably large chapter because I spent such a long time there. We went for a, a weekend break up to Bath. We were living in Exeter at the time. And we went up to Bath for the weekend and fell in love with the place. And I still call Bath, or between Bath um, in the UK and Valencia in Spain, my home. Um, but Bath is probably my number one home if I ever had to choose. And um, we decided, right, we're going to move to Bath. So we went back and handed in notice on three jobs and needed to find a job in Bath. And there was a interesting little shop on the high street called Carfern Warehouse that I walked past and it was selling these, what I only could call suitcases that apparently you could talk to people on and um, lots of space-aged technology that hadn't quite come to fruition just yet. And, and I thought, well, I'll apply for a job. I only need a job till I get a proper job. So let's see how it goes. And I was fortunate enough to be accepted after my initial interview and then had to go up to London for a couple of weeks. So generally there was a, a two-week induction course. So you had to go up for two weeks, pass a test, and then you were allowed to speak to customers which actually was a, you know, in hindsight, a fantastically good way of seeing if people could, A, have the resilience and B, have the, the motivation to go away from home for two weeks, actually stay in reasonably unluxurious conditions and pass a test at the end. So if I went to London and on the first day, this reasonably young professional gentleman came to speak to us and, and his name was was Charles Dunstone and he's actually the founder of Carfirm Warehouse and at the end of his presentation or chat with us which by the way was a was in a, a car kit installation bay which was best described as a garage in Wembley he he spoke to us with such passion and such vision for the company and, and at that time in 
in kind of 90, what was it, 90, I'm going to say 97. Carphone was was a pretty small business. It had about 60, 60 odd stores. So it started to grow, but it was still reasonably small and, and unknown. But Charles spoke with such passion about where he wanted to get to and what he wanted from the business that I was hooked. And on that course, he 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 discussed and he spoke to us about five fundamental rules. And um, those five fundamental rules have, have stuck with me for my whole career. I'll just kind of recite them as, as best I can. We had to learn them. They're on our business cards, and I used to test people on them, if not on a daily basis, on a weekly basis. But, you know, one of, one of the first rules was, was effectively, if we don't look after the customer, someone else will. Another one of those rules was nothing is gained by winning an argument, but losing a customer. And that was an interesting one because I love winning arguments. Um, and it was only at the point when I actually really thought about that, about how ingenious it was, because often in, in retail or in many situations, we get ourselves into a position where we think we're right and, you know, absolutely, until the other person on the other end of the conversation submits, we're not going to stop. But genuinely, genuinely, um, as I've grown through my career and, and probably got a little bit older and many gray hairs, I've realized that, you know, actually, sometimes allowing the other person their point of view and, and listening to them a bit more and actually trying to meet, you know, meet eye to eye and and at a compromise is genuinely the best way to go so I've, I've carried that one it's probably been the hardest rule to live by um, and I have to remind myself on it on the odd occasion the third one was always deliver what you promise and if in doubt under promise and over deliver to anyone out there I can't underline how important that kind of rule or philosophy or words on a paper are because you know genuinely if you um if you're trying to do something for someone and you you deliver above expectations or you give them more than they expected you genuinely create either a relationship a friend or a customer for life and it's you know it's a key a key driver within me um, the next one was a, a really easy one and, and really resonated with, with, with me, which was always treat customers as you would like to be treated yourself. And again, I know we all go out shopping or most of us do it online now, but I know we go and, you know, wherever it is, whether you're out in a restaurant or whether you're out buying something, you know, whether that be a house, a car, a, a pint of milk, having someone who either shows an interest or you know, is genuinely interested in what it is you are buying or you are interested in buying, it really makes a difference. And nine times out of 10, when you when you meet someone who kind of shows that enthusiasm, you genuinely would, would buy from them, whatever it is they're selling. Um, and then the last one, and I kind of look, look at this as an individual as well as a company point of view, but that's the reputation of the company is in the hands of the individual. And I, I try and instill that in my 
you know, my day to day with my customers who, who are my employees, um, as well as my real customers who are obviously the people who are paying us rent. But um, every person who has a touch point with a customer effectively holds the reputation of the business in their hands. And that's really important. And it's something to think about. Because if you don't put the effort in to ensuring that everyone is aligned um, to what you're there for and why you're doing what you do, you know, quite often someone without that information or someone who doesn't feel motivated or someone who doesn't feel that they're important can genuinely damage the reputation of the business. And we live in a digital age now and, you know, reviews reviews um, and comments are so easily written from behind a screen or on a, on a phone that it doesn't take much for people to actually give their opinion of your business if indeed they don't feel the service is adequate. So those five fundamental rules and the way that, you know, Carphone Warehouse was, was going actually kept me at Carphone for nigh on 20 years. And just to kind of put that into perspective, I started as a sales consultant selling mobile phones. And what Carphone gave me was the opportunity to learn. And, you know, I remember my first week speaking to my area manager, an amazing guy called Jonathan Hook, and telling him that I wanted to be an area manager. He kind of looked at me, kind of 20-year-old kid, and said, maybe you should sell your first phone and understand the business first before you you take my job. But it was that ambition um, to kind of move on and, and do different things that has probably driven me the majority of my career. And what I, what I had the opportunity to do at, at Carphone was stick my hand up. Um, so anything that either the head office would ask or my boss would ask me, um, or ask the team to do, I was generally the guy that probably everyone was annoyed with. But I'd stick my hand up and say, yes, I'll do that. <laughs> it didn't matter what what it was. And sometimes that was cleaning the toilet, which was never that fun um, with a bunch of lads in a store. But, you know, I stuck my hand up and kind of just got on with it. And when I did stick my hand up to diff- different things, like, you know, check the commission for the whole company or start a pro a program to to analyze the sales process you know when i started to to volunteer for these different things i i got to learn new things and if you were to look at my educational background and some of the opportunities i was presented with at carphone to do you would never employ me to do that job because i worked in effectively every department of carphone warehouse outside of legal because I couldn't kid everyone that I'd been to law school but I, I had the opportunity to do some amazing things I, 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 I had a great kind of field management career where I was moved from sales consultant to assistant manager to branch manager to you know one of our premier store managers to area manager to divisional manager I then kind of moved into a central role and looked at everything to do with productivity so right people right place right time right budgets I then had a great opportunity to look after, you know, around 1,200 employees in, in 170 different stores, 
in the UK are then moved on from that to to go into our multi-channel business because that's when the internet really kicked off and you know we had to have the right systems and processes and that gave me the opportunity to travel to a number of different countries and roll out that strategy across seven different European markets, which was, you know, fantastic. And, you know, I had a, I had a lot of challenges on the odd occasion, you know, especially moving into Europe because people had different points of view and, and different cultures and countries do diff- things differently. And um, it was always my kind of, I kind of thirst to understand first. So, you know, seek to understand before you kind of give your your opinion. Um, and the one thing I did learn, and and thankfully I could always pull pull the I'm not English, I'm African card, which helped massively, was, you know, in a lot of European countries, when when they saw, you know, people coming from the UK business, they saw them as someone just coming to tell them what to do. And that's never the best way to get people to kind of join forces um, or commit to something. And my approach was slightly different, you know, and, and believe me, it was it was through making many mistakes, you know, <laughs> more mistakes than I can remember. But the one thing, again, another bit of advice to, to people is, you know, just learn from your mistakes. Please make mistakes. It's important to make mistakes. When you've done something wrong, important to tell people you've done something wrong um, is rule number one, rather than try and cover it up. And when, you, when you've done something wrong, think on how you can make it right. And when you, when you figure out how to make that right, present that solution along with the, along with the, the kind of confession you've done something wrong. Um, and believe me, that always, it always makes people look at you in a different way. And ultimately, they'll always give you another chance. But in my kind of career at that time, and, and and working in Europe, I found that, you know, ultimately just presenting where we were trying to get to, but then asking the team or the person I was dealing with or the department I was dealing with, how they felt we could get there just made things so much easier. And I think, you know, again, all too often in our careers, just because we might have the title or the label of the boss or the manager or the director or whatever it is, we think we have to have all the answers. And I think what what moving into Europe taught me was we don't have to have all the answers. However, all the answers are in the room. And if you ask other people for their opinion, um, and if you ask a group of people on how to solve a problem, nine times out of 10, they'll come up with a solution that works 10 times better than what you had in your head at the beginning of the of the day so that was a great learning point for me and you know took a bit of a little bit of brain remapping because i'd always been brought up to to kind of just do things myself and and not rely on others and you know just get things done and although that was effective maybe in the early part of my career as i grew and and needed to rely on other people I realized that they were the real strength. And I think that's something that's carried me through the rest of my career. So at Carphone, you know, I, I continued to grow. I, I had the opportunity to start a couple of businesses and work with some fantastic businesses, you know, weirdly 
Apple had Apple had never sold a phone when I was halfway through my career, and I was I was part of launching the Apple brand into the UK because it was only Carphone Warehouse and one other big distributor who who had the ad, Apple product. I I got to work with Apple over a number of years, but so did I get to work with a number of huge companies like Best Buy, Best Buy, Media Mark, Samsung, you name it. I've 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 had the opportunity of working with all of them and. You know, although my my career grew and and I got to spend many years in in different countries and even a good few years in in the U.S., the one thing that always drove me was a the ambition to create something special and do something that other people didn't think could be achieved. And in order to do that, I always had to hire great people and then rely on them to do their job. And then my job was to support them and make sure they had the tools to do that job. And I think that's another, you know, lesson I've I've carried with me for many years is, you know, your job as a manager is to look after your team and, you know, create an environment in which they can excel. And I think about that quite often, you know, am I creating an environment in which my team can excel? And I'd say probably 80% of the time I, 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 tr- I try and I'm doing my best. But, you know, 20% of the time I'm still a stubborn old git and I don't listen and I'm a bit pig-headed. And um, it just takes me a moment to reflect um, so I can kick myself back into making sure I'm doing the right thing for my team. And... and Again, to anyone listening out there, you know, you won't change yourself overnight um, and, you, and you can never fundamentally change the way you're absolutely wired, but you can definitely come a long way from where you started. However, it's very easy to revert to type and, you know, do the things you're just comfortable with or the things that are easy. Um, and as humans, we love to do things that are just easy, which is why, you know, the Internet has taken off and Deliveroo is is so popular. And another test I always show people if they want to understand how lazy humans are is if you go and open a door to a shopping center, watch how many people will walk through that door rather than having to push a door open themselves it's astounding. People will actually queue to walk through an open door rather than open a door themselves. It's a test I always show people when I'm uh, trying to make a point. Um, I came to the end of my car phone career after 20 years of doing the most fantastic things and working with the most fantastic people. And I kind of finished my career setting up a business in America, which again, was a a real lesson for me um, on, although we may speak the same language, we we definitely may or may not understand each other. And um, again, that's another, you know, lesson or life learning that I've had is you may be speaking to someone in the same language. It may be their first language or their second language, but if you're both speaking to each other in English, and you're having a conversation and you're kind of seeing the head nodding and you then walk away and a week later you get something that you totally didn't expect or you totally didn't want 
it brings you very quickly to realize that yes you might be talking to someone um, in the same language however their understanding of what you've just said and your understanding of what they've just said can be totally the opposite so again another a real big lesson for me is a at the end of any conversation when you are expecting something to be done it's really important both sides, both parties, whether that's just individuals or group of people, you agree what it is you're going to do, who's accountable, what information they might need, you know, what support they might need, and what the end goal to whatever that solution or problem or jo just general job is. Because it's amazing how you can leave a group of people all thinking you're marching on the same path and fundamentally you go away and deliver totally different things and it's a little bit like that thing i'm sure we all did it at school where you you start the sentence at the back of the queue and you pass that sentence forward and by the time it gets to the front of the queue it means something either under something undecipherable or something totally different and i know that's something that we do when we're young kids but that is something that happens in the boardroom as much as it does in kindergarten so another thing um, for people to kind of take away is, you know, just be really clear and make sure you agree with whoever it is. And even when it's your job with your boss and they're asking you to do something, you know, just try and make sure that you're both clear on what needs to be delivered. Because, you know, if you're the boss or you're the, you're, you know, you're working for someone and you go away and deliver something that they didn't expect it, they didn't expect or want, Ultimately, that only causes friction and genuinely it slows down your progress. And if you want nothing to stand in the way of your progress, especially your professional progress or personal growth, just make sure you're clear on the rules of the game. So, you know, after leaving Carphone, you know, I, I went and and Funnily enough, I worked for a venture capital company, which which was run by Charles Dunstone. Um, he had kind of moved on to be Sir Charles Dunstone then. And, you know, my, my next step and the opportunity that was presented to me after spending 20 years in retail was was to to open a, an F&B, a food and beverage chain, which seems very interesting, um, especially it was a it was a, a fast casual restaurant that that mainly focused on chicken and when people know that i'm a vegetarian and they were saying to me darren what on earth are you doing opening a an fmb restaurant or a restaurant that sells chicken when you're a vegetarian i suppose it's, it's it says a lot about my my psychology you know again i was presented with an opportunity working for an amazing person um, and given the resources to do something incredibly exciting and my instinct was obviously to say yes um, and I'd like to say um, we did a fantastic job of doing that and you know again I pulled a team together and and we we went and we did something that um, that we had never done before and we pulled it off and, and it, it opened to rave reviews unfortunately the the kind of financial and political crisis at the time didn't didn't turn out to to that progressing and and that was a real blow to me because it was something that I had created literally from a blank piece of paper, the name and everything. And that dream came true only to be taken away 
overnight when share prices dipped and the investment in that business had to be stopped. And that was a great life lesson as well, um, especially when I had poured my heart and soul into it for two years and everything that I created effectively evaporated overnight. And I think, again, you know, I took that opportunity and would I do it again? Yes, I would. I'd do it again tomorrow because I, I learned so much. And not only did I learn how to do something different, that my skills were tran- transferable, but I also learned, you know, the heartache of losing something that was very important to me. And that then gave me the opportunity to reflect and think about what, what I wanted to do next. And as part of the 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 kind of venture capital company, you know, Charles also owned a, a very large stake of Student Castle, which is which was in the real estate category. And, you know, retail was taking a hammering F and B, so the restaurant world was also taking a hammering. However, one thing that, you know, was doing pretty well, and thankfully Touchwood is still doing pretty well, um, was real estate. But there was a big opportunity there. So I started to think about how I could get into into that world. And out of the blue, I was presented with an opportunity to get into it. And I spent a short period of time at, at, at a, a reasonably big REIT in the UK, looking after circa 10,000 beds, about 97 assets. And that was called Hello Student. And again, working for the CEO at the time, Tim, we had a great rapport. And I was shocked about how transferable again my skills were from you know understanding the customer base selling the selling effectively the product but then ultimately looking after the customer but all the stuff around really looking after your customers in real estate is just a massive opportunity and I kind of moved on from Hello Student reasonably quickly again circumstances change but I I was very fortunate to meet uh, Brian Welsh, who recruited me into the COO position at Nido. And what really drew me to that was, you know, the culture um, and the opportunity to to really make a difference and grow. And, you know, I I have to say, I I genuinely am blessed every day um, with my team and and the output of the team um, and effectively what we do in in the real estate world and what I have learned is coming from retail and having all the challenges has has definitely helped me in my career in the real estate industry because as margins get squeezed or big challenges come along like the energy crisis and and you have to you know maneuver and and think about new ideas Um, and different things and different opportunities, my whole career before that set me up to always think about things differently, take on a challenge, try and look at it from a different perspective, and ultimately, you know, try and deliver a solution. And, you know, again, from a from a well-being point of view, looking after our, our customers, and I have this conversation with our investors reasonably often, you know, if if we do look after the team that support the customers, and that's the important thing. In other words, if you've got a great team, a resident team, um, who fundamentally look after their customers, genuinely the business takes care of itself. And that NOI number that you're looking for um, will come. And, you know, in a world where 
you know, property prices continue to increase, you know, and that's basically down to supply and demand, the real value is added at the operator level. And I, I truly believe that. And I believe a huge amount of investors in the real estate world are coming to that conclusion. And as the residential sector or retail estate sector is is becoming to provide more services, um, because as I say, fundamentally, us humans love to be looked after. And the more services you offer, and that's whether in our rental schemes where we offer, you know, doggy daycare, um, it's amazing how many people will take you up on that offer. Um, or just allowing pets as a start um, makes a huge difference to the amount of people who want to stay and providing, you know, all gen, you know, genuine services that look after well-being, whether that be financial, mental or health. It really does create um, a differentiator in the segment. And I'm so excited by the future and I continue to learn every day. And I think that's what keeps me motivated. So it's a bit of a whirlwind. I apologies if I if I kind of stuck on some subjects for a little bit too long. But hopefully people have taken away a, a couple of nuggets in that. And um, all I can say is onwards and upwards. Well, Darren, thank you very much for, for that. You are a fantastic sort of storyteller. So you'll forgive me then for just sort of sitting back and enjoying that. But whilst, whilst you have been chatting, I've been scribbling down uh, some notes here. And you'll know we like to do a bit of research. Uh, and interestingly, sort of one of the guys we spoke to who knew you right at the very, very start of your of that sort of particularly the car firm warehouse sort of career, did say something then that you also, you said about yourself. And that was one of the key things about Darren is he's always the person to put up his hands first. So I wanted to ask you a question associated with that. And I think sort of successful people are often described as, some, as someone or as some sort of pioneer. You know, so that's someone who jumps in first. Now, as someone like this, are you more of a risk taker or do you just evaluate risk differently to the rest of us? I'm probably a little bit more of a risk taker. And, and what I'll always bank on when I'm weighing up a risk is whether I think I can do it or not. And, and that's my barometer. If I believe I can achieve something, then I will take the risk. As soon as I look at something and think, mm, I'm going to not be able to achieve that, that's when I evaluate it a little bit more. But I, I would say, you know, you know, mainly it's a calculated risk. Ultimately, if it's not going to affect anything materially, I will always jump in. And if it's a bit really big decision you know I like to speak to a couple of people about it first and get a quorum before I make my mind up but I am yeah very very quick if presented with an opportunity or a challenge to to just jump in and and you know take that take that risk if it's if it's there I'm going to um, go in a bit deeper then don't I, I am uh, I'm not gonna let you off the hook quite so easily because you I think you said something there that lots of people would agree with about, you know, you are, you want to take on the challenge then that you know you can succeed at. But for someone who's taken such big changes, different sectors, different responsibilities, you know, like you said about this particular sort of car and warehouse experience, done lots of different jobs, there will be lots of people in your shoes 
who wouldn't consider themselves able to succeed in those different roles because they've never done it before. So why do you think or how do you, how do you measure your you know your ability your chance of success differently to others i think um you either need to be prepared or you need to be prepared to fail and i think that's probably something that i've always carried with me you know even if i was taking on something i knew nothing about i would do as much preparation for that opportunity as possible and i would plan and think about it and write stuff down and be very methodical about how i'm going to do it you know lots of scribbling and you know making notes on on how i'm going to approach it so so don't get me wrong i don't just jump in with two feet and not have a scooby i will do research i will make sure you know i am confident that i'm going to at least go in with with a level of understanding of that opportunity and you know, again, the other thing which comes over time is, is, you know, whatever opportunity you're presented with, you're never going into that alone. And you're generally put into a, a group of people who have a lot of experience in that environment or role or, or opportunity. And the one thing I would always say is do not be afraid to ask. Put your hand up when you don't know. Say you don't know stuff. Don't be the person who is Mr. Know-it-all. And having that slightly more humble approach actually gets people to support you and they will help you. And effectively, they then help you succeed. So I think that's that's the that's the thing. Take Take the risk, say yes. And as soon as you said yes, start preparing. Otherwise, you know, genuinely, if you're just going to take a risk or take an opportunity and not be prepared to put the legwork in, you will fail. Okay. Sticking with my research, I've got an, uh, another, another quote here from someone uh, who knew you very well. And I asked them what, what makes you different. And this is what they said. And, and uh, you'll forgive me. I'd, they they said this with the with the sort of a fantastic sort of southwestern accent. And I won't I won't try and emulate <laughs> that, but you just have to um, uh, just imagine it. Um, so Darren is just a different type of gravy. So whether he's at work, he's on a bike, or just his hobbies and interests, he is the hardest working person, most driven, yet most supportive individual I know. Oh, now, that's whilst that's kind. it's very nice, isn't it? But I wanted to, I wanted to ask you a question on that, and that and that is, you know, as a as a leader, there, I would have anticipated there's a bit of a conflict here between that extremely driven individual and the person who's very very supportive. So, you know, how do you manage that drive for self and not compromise the team? It's important to ensure the team are aware of the vision or the end goal or the opportunity or what is deemed as successful. And then it's important to ensure they are bought into that. And once people are bought into a vision, an idea, an opportunity, you know, and they genuinely believe, and this was that conversation I was having a while back about making sure you're talking the same language, but you're going away with the same objectives. Once you find people are as motivated or motivated they'll they potentially won't be as motivated as you definitely not in the beginning you know 
But once they are motivated by an idea and feel they have some ownership and some commitment to it, you can then support them to get there. And and that's the difference. It's not about dragging people to the goal. It's about pushing them and supporting them to get there. And that, you know, that's, it's the kind of carrot and stick. It's, you know, it's the upside down pyramid of management where, you know, from my point of view, you know, most, most hierarchies are pyramid shape. I always like to invert that. And I'm at the bottom of the pyramid supporting the people who, who effectively would be sitting below me on the pyramid. So I like to put them above me. And I think once you have that mindset and you see how amazing people are and the commitment and support and extra effort they will put in when they believe, you know, they are being supported, praised and motivated to do a good job. You achieve more than you could as an individual if you were dragging people along um, and barking orders. And I learned that from doing it the wrong way in the beginning. And I, I have to be honest, Nick, you know, when the first part of my career and, you know, I had some advice from some people, you know, I, I was, you know, I was too dictatorial and, you know, and and it, it didn't, it got me success-ish, but it was selfish success. And that was never going to, you know, I was never going to grow as a leader. And it was only when someone sat me down and told me that, and I actually understood what they said, that I realized, you know, that success comes from the team and you've got to be there to inspire the team and then support them to get to the end goal. And, and genuinely, it, it works. So, Darren, I've got to start uh, to wrap up now. I'm very sorry, but I've got time just for one more question. And you've obviously come across as then someone who is incredibly driven. And we haven't even talked about um, uh, what lots of people told me about in terms of your sort of cycling ambitions and all these things you've (laughs) you've achieved outside of work. But what I wanted to ask then is about about this sort of drive you've got and and whether it's changed over time. So does the same thing drive you as that 18-year-old who arrived in the UK to being the chief exec of a major real estate business? Do the same things drive you? Um, it's really, it's a really interesting question. And actually, I, I would say the same things drive me. I've, I've always been a very driven person. But what what gives me fulfillment and, and what I see joy in has changed. And, you know, that, you know, in my in my early career, it, it was very much or my early part of my life, it, it was very much about being driven to kind of be successful. And then I realized, you know, success, whatever that may or may not be, you know, isn't necessarily the measure of, you know, being fulfilled. And and what, you know, let, let's just talk about, you know, what your paycheck is or, you know, what clothes you wear or what car you drive, which which is, you know, quite drives a huge amount of society. What drives me now is, and I'm, I'm still as passionate about it, are different things you know and i appreciate i appreciate time more now so i'm driven to do a great job to create more time that i can have with my loved ones and i'm driven to create more time to be less focused on the detail but more focused on getting other people to do a great job so 
I don't think my drive or passion has changed. It's just the output. Um, so at the end of whatever that project is. So we, we can touch on cycling for a brief moment. You know, I used to be driven to win. Now I'm driven to compete because I've realized that I can't, I can't win anymore. However, I can be very competitive. And then in my age group, I can, you know, ultimately win. But when I'm racing against a bunch of whippersnappers, you know, it is just not going to be achievable. So I change my role to support the team in order for them to be successful. And that drive still requires as much training, as much effort, and as much energy as I have within me. But ultimately, it ends up with a different goal. And when I see the team being successful, that gives me a lot of pleasure. So the drive has always been there. The output and what I deem as success has changed. And I think that will happen for a lot of people in their careers and in their personal life. And again, hindsight's a brilliant thing. And time is something you can never get back. And work-life balance is something that you need to think about. And, you know, the well-being of your, you know, whether it be your mental, physical or financial health, all those things are being spoken about now and are very important and nothing like that was discussed at the beginning of my career. So, yeah, I'm as driven as I was as a probably 15-year-old today. Just the output is different. All right, Dan, listen, I've got to wrap things up, but thank you so much for sharing that story. You know, I said at the start, this is some, uh, these are often some of my favourite sort of stories about people who've, who've had variety in, uh, in their career and you've absolutely had that in abundance. So thank you very much for sharing that and all the lessons you've learned as well. Thank you, Nick. I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much.